0: All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridian. Believe it or not, we're actually making headway. So I don't know, it may be too optimistic to think we'd necessarily get through the section on good works or new obedience today, but maybe. And then we're on to uh, mortal and venial sin, sin against the Holy Spirit, topics sure to be interesting and drawing to a close of this text, you know, somewhere around 156, 157, somewhere in there. So y- if you're looking for it, you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And then, of course, we'll have to go through our book selection process. So I know some of you have uh, probably already given me recommendations, which I've summarily forgotten. <laughs> so if you, <laughs> so keep those in your mind and we'll solicit books that you might like to study, and I'll kind of put some of my own forward. We'll get a list and we'll all vote vote on what we want to do next. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses As we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory for ever and ever. Amen. All right, it would be worthwhile to glance again at question one ninety three on page ninety nine. I know we covered this, but it's fairly foundational for the scriptural and Lutheran understanding of what good works are. So, 193, but what are the good works that are to be taught and performed in the church? Only those that God himself has prescribed and commanded in his word, whose sum is briefly contained and set forth in the Decalogue rightly understood. That is according to the interpretation of scripture, which scripture Therefore calls the law or the deeds, uh, or yeah, the law of deeds or of works. Romans 3:27. OK, so again, like hopefully this is Christianity 101, but it's gotten pretty twisted and perverted in the late 20th, early 21st century. Sin is that which is contrary to the law. Sin is anomia. Um, and then what is a good work, that which is according to the law. Question 194. But why are not a monastic life and similar things good and God-pleasing works since they were instituted by the Holy Fathers and are done with good intent? They are not for this reason, because God wants to rule himself and alone in his great house, which is the church, by commanding and forbidding consciences, as he expressly says. And of self-appointed works, he says. Now there's a whole bunch of citations given about self-appointed works and why those aren't pleasing to God. And Paul clearly rejects self-appointed acts of worship, though they have the appearance of wisdom. Okay, So the idea that man is constantly trying to invent his own set of good works, and that turns one aside from the actual good works that God commands. So he would have us engaged with the Ten Commandments in our stations or places of life. Vocation gets used in a kind of a sloppy and haphazard form in our culture, like everything, practically everything is a vocation. Um, But it is good to know and good to refresh that the specificity of like where you work or what your career is, isn't a vocation in the theological sense. Like whether you're a plumber or an accountant isn't a vocation in a theological sense. Your vocation would be as husband and provider. And then you provide through the means of one job or another. Otherwise, you get stuck in this weird and unbiblical and un-Lutheran theology of like, well, I first became a plumber. Now, I I need to be faithful to my vocation. I can never be anything but a plumber. That's not the essence of vocation. So, vocation, properly speaking, are those things spoken of in Scripture. There's three corresponding pairs or six uh, chief vocations. Do you remember them? Husband and wife. It's the pair, child and parents, and then master and slaves, or employer-employee, although increasingly it's easier to just say master and slave, isn't it? So these are the six biblical vocations. Now, whether you serve as a slave in a shoe factory or in a household or whatever it may be is, is secondary. right? That's the form it takes, but the vocation proper is that you be this thing. Whether you're the father of one child or 15 children, uh, that's that's secondary to you just simply being a father. Okay? Whether you're a husband of one wife or 12... No, never mind. <laughs> okay, so you get the point, though, that these are the vocations, and then the specific form it takes can shift. So you don't want to get confused into thinking like, well, my vocation, my vocatio in the theological sense is to be X, Y, or Z, because that can shift and change over time. Your vocation in that specific sense is... Uh, of like employment is rather to be the provider for your family as, as a husband. And of course we've talked about how that can be distributed in the family to others as well.
1: Sometimes you're several at the same time.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. These. Yeah. I mean to in in effect to um, you know child is the best vocation. <laughs> and it's because a child that you're in the office of one who simply receives And then you grow toward independence. But if you think of like a newborn baby, they contribute nothing. They can do nothing. I went with this. I went through this with the confirmation kids last night. It's just, it's kind of remarkable though to think on that, you know, your parents literally do everything for you. And in that sense, they're in the office of God. That's why the fourth commandment is where it is. And sometimes, you know, the table of, um, you know, the two tables of the law where you've got the commandments one through three about love for God and commandments seven through 10 about love for neighbor. Sometimes you will find the fourth commandment on the table of God and the, the rationale being that it is God who is, uh, who has given you life and who is sustaining life through the clothing, feeding, sheltering, changing all the things uh, that a child needs to grow. It's God himself who's doing that, but he's doing that through parents like father and mother would be effectively his right hand and his left. They're the means or the office through which God himself is working. And so sometimes that fourth commandment is even incorporated into the first table, love for God. That's how seriously it's taken. Even more seriously than the fifth commandment, you should not murder. Because where does life come from? Father and mother. So father and mother are more foundational than life itself, in that sense. Because life comes from father and mother. Okay, how did I get here? Um the point being that these, these are the vocations, the holy vocations of God. And the uh, small catechism teaches us to continually consider our place in life, our status or station in life, our vocations, which vocations we hold in light of the Ten Commandments. Okay? And that will do two things for us. That will positively set forward what God desires for us to do and it will simultaneously give us ample reason to confess our sins and be forgiven and move forward. So far so good? Yes, sir. There's, there's a hand in the back. Please just repeat this short question. Okay. okay. Um, not, not strictly speaking. So, yeah, you are, by virtue of your birth, you're a neighbor. By virtue of your birth, you're a creation of God. So, nobody really talks about these as vocations just because they're just manifestly what it means to be and to exist in this creation. Um, I suppose you could, right? I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong. We don't want to quibble over words. Yeah, and you're,
1: you're
0: not fulfilling that command right, right, yeah that's, and that's a good point especially apropos of uh, question 194 about monasticism you'll find, you'll, find a, you'll find nuance in the Lutheran perspective toward monasticism but what is rejected generally speaking and outright within Lutheranism is the form precisely as you just articulated it the idea that you're trying to get away from these vocations that God has given you and do something different. And then likewise, very frequently in monasticism, this is viewed as not just alternative, but superior to. So the the monks and, and maybe the nuns are a more holy life, a more holy way of living than just regular Joe Schmo trying to live in the God-given vocations with the God-given commandments. You see the problem. So that is the Lutheran critique, and it's a heavy critique but it's not to say that monks can't still do good works even if the form is wrong because monks could be praying on behalf of the church. That's not a bad work, right? It's just that they could be more effective not only praying for the church but actually rolling up their sleeves and being engaged in vocational life. So, um, and even if that were a form of um, monasticism, so to speak, or, or a religious order in order to serve the church, that's that's a different that's a different animal than kind of going off into the desert and doing nothing for no one, right? So that, it's that kind of crass, pe- uh, that kind of crass monasticism that is uh, denounced by the Lutherans and really denounced by the Scriptures. Um, but there are there are certain mer- um, good elements of monasticism or or, or of the monks themselves. I think, I think we can allow for that. The idea of prayer. The idea of some of the monks would preach. Some of the monks would teach. Some of the monks would write. Those aren't bad things. Those are good things. It's just, hey, you could have been more effective if you did this in the vocation, in the, in the church rather than outside of it. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. More nuanced uh, critique could be given for sure. Okay. So then we're looking here at 194 and the idea that man is constantly creating, and Christians included, a new set of commandments and a new set of good works. This is ironic because you'll see this even within the kind of new antinomians of our day, this idea of like, no, the Ten Commandments, the substance of the Ten Commandments is erased. Christ is the end of the law, so don't even look at the Ten Commandments anymore, except maybe to accuse your flesh. That's it, just a purely negative view. What do you put in the place? What fills that vacuum? Well, whatever fantasy that particular antinomian has. And usually it's, it's something ridiculous, but it's still a commandment. Um, like, read more of my books. <laughs> that, that way you'll stay free. Um, refuse to do any good works. That's still a commandment, right? You've just, you've just taken the whole Decalogue and made your commandment an antithesis to it. So... This is the kind of thing we see, and it's it's preposterous, of course. Every, all of, I mean, all of life has a form, including the Christian life. How do you define that form? Biblically, it's. What about um, fasting? Yeah, and I think that you can see, like in Question One Ninety Three, only those that God Himself has prescribed and commanded in His Word, whose sum is briefly contained and set forth in the di- Decalogue rightly understood. So while there might not be an explicit commandment to fast, is there fasting taught within God's Word and prescribed within God's Word? Absolutely. Jesus says in Matthew 6, when you fast. And even Luther in his small catechism, fasting is fine bodily training. And he's talking specifically about that fasting Christians have historically done before communion, whereas you eat your meal, uh, your evening meal on Saturday, and then you don't eat again Till communion and then that's the fast the preparatory fast for communion sometimes longer than that but that's fairly typical <clears throat> okay so yeah fasting would be one of those things that you'd easily find more broadly in the word and the word of course is summed up and briefly contained in the decalogue but it's really whatever the scriptures say and that's an important thing to keep in mind here as well yeah one second, please.
1: Uh, just a simple question: Should we be fasting for communion? I mean, should we learn to do that as a practice? Do you encourage? I think it's that? great.
0: Yeah, I think I think the church, and I mean the church at large, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod needs to corporately regain its theology of fasting so that it doesn't feel like some pastor's doing his own idiosyncratic thing when he you know and that's kind of like the the rock and the hard place I feel like I'm in between as I know we have I know we have this this teaching from the scriptures I know this teaching is thoroughgoing up to and through the Reformation, up to and through American Lutheran, and now it's gone. And so my choices are either restart it here at our congregation in such a way that it feels idiosyncratic and odd that I'm doing this, almost maybe cultish, like why is Rhodey telling you to do this? Very subject to um, the charge of legalism Uh, versus our church body who seems largely disinterested. So that's you know, you've got these tensions. You've got this rock in this hard place. So yeah, one of these days I'm just going to get around to saying, "Hey, here's a, here's a really easy prescription. You're totally free in Christ to do this or not do this." But it's it's a corporate uh, it's a corporate act, a corporate kind of. So yeah, there's all different ways in which you can consider fasting, um, but a very easy one to do if you're new to it. And and yeah, I mean, pay attention to like. I don't know if you're a diabetic or something. Like, pay attention to what your doctor says. I'm not. I'm not trying to tell you to do things that are. If you really can't function, take it slow. How How about just like, one cookie before bed instead of, five or six or something like that, right? Take it easy. Um, the whole point isn't to torture yourself. But yeah, what a great place to start. That you just say, I'm going to hold off on breakfast, have communion, and and you'll be amazed. The body adapts even if it's uncomfortable. The most common days of fasting, even over the course of the year, are Wednesdays and Fridays. So that's always an option to use in terms of a general fast. And I would just advise something really easy, like if you want to take this up for a a time, um, just do something like skip lunch. It's really user-friendly, because you've got breakfast. And be a little careful, because the temptation is what? Just a split lunch that's absent between breakfast and dinner. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, I'll, eat, I'll eat 50% more breakfast and 50% more dinner. Uh, but that's fine. At least it's a starting place. And then Lent will provide an opportunity. So, um, you know, I think we have, to, we have to be humble enough to set the bar really low. But Christ says, when you fast. Luther talks about fasting. Fasting has always been a normal part of the church. And part of the secret of fasting is when you fast, guess what suddenly makes sense that didn't before? A feast. <laughs> So, we're feasting all the darn time, right? What are you, you going to get for lunch? Whatever I want. How much are you going to eat? However much I want. We're constantly in a state of feasting, and fasting seems odd. And then we get to, like, what is Thanksgiving? Just sort of any other day with different food and with an ostensible excuse to overeat. So, what, fast, what fasting actually allows you to do is have, the, uh, have a conception of an Easter feast or have a conception of a Christmas feast or have a conception of, the, if you're fasting on a weekly basis, um, having a conception of the feast of the Lord's Supper and this kind of climactic thing. So we don't understand feasts because we don't understand fasts. We don't understand fasts because all we're doing is feasting. So it would be really good. It's really un american isn't, isn't it amazing how our theology has just kind of like given way to Americanism? I think that's really probably what's happened more than anything else. We just still
2: drink water and keep our fluids up,
0: right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to drink water. Yeah, so, I mean, you'll find, you'll find pretty extreme fasting in the Eastern Orthodox. I mean, stuff that, like, I couldn't flat out do because I'm not well-trained enough in it. And probably most people couldn't, but they'll, they'll go uh, extensive times without water too. Um, so I think there's, there's a kind of balance there and a kind of Christian freedom to find what works for you. And um, there is danger in prescribing fast, like, like, so a corporate fast prescribed in such a way that if you don't follow it, now you're guilty of a sin. You see what has just happened is now we're teaching a commandment of men as if it were a commandment of God. Or if it said you had to do this or else you're sinning. No, you have to do this or else you won't be saved. Of course not, right? Now we're, now we're drawing in a work of man into the article. So there's all kinds of dangers for this to get um, perverted, to be sure. But there's also a danger in not doing it at all. Then Jesus says, when you fast, and you go, well, I don't really do that, so whatever. And then he says, when you pray, and you go, ah, well, I don't fast, so... When you give alms, yeah, well, I can tell that this is all metaphorical. (laughs) That's what happens. So, anyway, fasting is an example of something not explicitly taught in the Ten Commandments. Undoubtedly, you can find it. Like, if I were to try to locate it, I'd probably locate it in the Sixth Commandment. That's typically where it's done. Lusting being more than just uh, sexual lust, but all kinds of lusts, disordered, including that of the belly. Um, But more explicitly, it's just in the Word of God. And the Decalogue rightly sums up the Word of God, but doesn't contain every detail. So far, so good? All right, 195. Yet Paul preached the gospel to the Corinthians freely and without pay, and vaunts this very thing as a notable work. 1 Corinthians 9, 12, and 15, even though it was not commanded by God. Hmm, interesting argument, actually. What's the answer? Paul had a general commandment from God to preach the gospel in such a way as not to obstruct its way by any offense, but that he might rather by all means gain the weak. And on the basis of this divine command, and to that end, for the sake of the church at Corinth, he taught the gospel without pay, not in order by that very thing to establish a special, I don't know if I should try. No, I don't think so. Man-made religion without commands of God, as he himself declares in the passage cited. So again, with, um, it is not that he would establish a special man-made religion or man-made work without the commands of God. And he makes that abundantly clear. This work of Paul, therefore, belongs to the general command of God regarding the faithful administration of the apostolic ministry, just as also the example of David playing before the ark, 2 Samuel 6, 5, and of Mary anointing Christ, Matthew 26, 7, is included in divine commands. Okay, well, I think the point's clear then. 196, but now we are no longer under the law, but free from the law and dead to it. Romans 6.14, 7.4, 7.6. Why then, after we have now been justified by faith, are we again subjected to required good works, contrary to Christian freedom from the law? Galatians 5.1. That's a question that gets asked all the time today. Answer, we are free from the law, first, with regard to justification. Namely, that good works are not to be done in this opinion and to this end, as though we need them for justification and salvation, which are favors of Christ alone and are received by faith alone. Second, with regard to curse and condemnation. Because the works of believers, though they are by no means pure and perfect in this life by reason of sin dwelling in them, that is, in the believers, yet they are not, for that reason, subject to the curse and condemnation of the law. Romans 8, one). which is, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Third, with regard to constraint, namely that the law with the rod of its demand ought not to extort from believers as from unwilling people only the outward appearance of obedience out of harmony with inward feelings but with the will unwilling and opposed which Paul calls the oldness of the letter for God requires ready obedience. And then a bunch of uh, scriptures given here. And to that extent we have indeed been free, uh, made free from the law. But when the question is asked, which the works are that God has ordained that we should walk in them. Remember Ephesians 2, we went through this, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive in Christ Jesus that you might walk in these uh, good works that he has ordained ahead of time. That's Ephesians 2. So which the works are that God has ordained that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10, then God himself leads us to his commands and precepts, Deuteronomy, Ezekiel, and Romans cited. And as Paul is about to point out what the well-pleasing and perfect will of God is with regard to good works, he leads us to love, which is a brief summary of the law. And then he expressly lists the commandments of the Decalogue. Romans 13.9. Galatians 5.14. So you'll notice like it's always Romans 10. We looked at this last week. Christ is the end of the law. And all the deceivers put period, but that's not the end of the verse. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. And then look what comes in Romans 13.9. Three chapters later, Paul puts forward the Decalogue. Or where we started in the question that we are free from the law, uh, Galatians 5.1, look here at what Chemnitz cites, Galatians 5.14. So after we're free from the law, St. Paul describes what that means and then says, here is the law. The commandments of the Decalogue that we are to keep. Okay, so even even this kind of thing of like, okay, you're even if someone were to say, okay, you're totally free from the law, the moral content of the law, you can just completely ignore God's word and commandments because all that matters is justification in Christ apart from works. That's it's all that matters. Everything, you know, or this famous line, which is terrible theology, sanctification is just getting used to your justification. That kind of thing where it just guts out everything. It just makes everything justification okay, well, what, what then should I do as a Christian? I mean, you'll sometimes get the anemic answer of like, well, what do you feel like doing? Which turns me right back to myself and the incrovatus and in say and the bondage of the will, which is a huge problem. But then the, slight, the, the, the slightly better, even if rare, answer you get is, well, just love. Just, just go love. Now, that's interesting because love in what sense Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. And how do I do these two commandments? Well, here's the two tables of the law. You see how it works. Okay, so it's unavoidable. If you're going to say anything biblical, you're going to end up back with the Decalogue. And Chemnitz is simply pointing this out. So in what ways are you free from the law? These Let, let me just restate these things very quickly. First, you you are freed from the need to justify yourself before God by keeping the law. Because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. He is your full righteousness, not your keeping of the Ten Commandments, right? Second, you are free from the condemnation of the law. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. The law already like like a burned over zone, right? It already burned and consumed uh, Christ on the cross. And we're invited now to that burned over zone and we're, we're now free from the curse and the wrath of God that's to come upon the rest of the world. We're inviting men into that burned over zone. Look, it already hit. The full wrath of God already hit in this one place. Come stand here because when the wrath of God is poured out over the whole world, you'll be safe in this, in this place, in this cross. You're freed from the condemnation of the law. Freed from the need to justify yourself by the law. Freed from the condemnation of the law. What's the third point here? The third point is the sort of works of the law that are just um, compulsory, okay? And the kind of works that, so you can can grasp, you can start to grasp this if you think of, remember the three uses of the law? Okay, what's the first, do you remember? Curb, Curb. Curb. second is mirror, third is Guide. guide. Okay, very helpful way of understanding the law. So a curb does what for your vehicle? Let's say we're using a vehicle. Yeah, stops it. If you lose control, it kind of limits the damage. You can't just go on plowing through things or whatever. It's probably a modern take on that, but whatever. So uh, you've got a curb. You've got something that stops you from going any further. So let's think about this. Um, If you tap into the more base and fleshly impulses in your own heart, you might be able to do this. If you're too saintly and sanctified, maybe not. You might have to hypothetically think of, uh, think of a fallen human being. Why, if you, you know, if you said to someone, hey, if you could get away with robbing a bank, would you? Like no one would ever know. You just suddenly have, and let's be a little more fictitious because, I mean, what do, what do banks have in their vaults these days? Like a few 10,000 bucks? Who knows? Not very much. But let's say you could find some way to steal uh, millions of dollars You would never get caught and no one would ever know and there would never be any punishment. Would you do it? Pagans would virtually universally say yes. Many Christians would be tempted to say yes. So then, well, why don't you? Well, because I could get caught. Because I could go to jail. I could go to prison. I could lose everything I do have. same idea of like you're running late. What's, What's the thing that keeps you from going 100 miles an hour down the freeway? Maybe nothing, maybe you're one of those that do pass me. I, if you're ever going the fastest on a California freeway, you know you've done something really wrong in life. Uh, but, but yeah, imagine like why wouldn't you go 110 down a freeway? Because you're like gonna get a ticket. Oh. So what what, what these kinds of examples illustrate is it's not any kind of godliness. It's not any kind of love for good. It's not any kind of selflessness that is motivating the behavioral change. It is what? Fear of punishment and fear of punishment alone. So this is the way the law functions as a curb. It says, if you do this, then this will happen to you. And a lot of people out there think that they're good people because they go, I'm a law-abiding person. The only reason you're a law-abiding person is because the consequences are too great for you to break the law. That doesn't make you a good person. It just means that the evil within you is, and the selfishness within you is restrained by certain consequences that will befall you. That's what restrains your behavior. Otherwise, if you could get away with it, you'd do it. Make sense? So that illustrates not a converted heart, but a wicked heart and a selfish heart that is now artificially constrained by punishment. We're set free from that as Christians because we don't have wicked, rebellious, selfish hearts, at least not in the new man. And so we are set free then from this compulsory fear of punishment in the new man and we can actually walk in and say, I delight in the law. Why, why would I be selfless? Why would I do this? Not so much because of the consequence, but because it's the right thing to do. Because it's how I love God and love my neighbor. A Christian um, with strong enough faith and character, virtue, could very easily say, hey, here's, uh, this, this is a way to get tens of millions of dollars. Think of all the good you could do. Build a church, buy an orphanage, um, Look at all the good you could do. You'll never get caught. You'll get away with it 100%. And a Christian would say, absolutely not. Not even close. Because I love God too much. Because I love good too much. I would never dream of doing that kind of thing. You don't need an external law to constrain you. You don't need threat of punishment to constrain you. Because it is the love of God and the love of good itself. That's the difference. Okay? So that's really what this third point is that Chemnitz is articulating. Of course, he does it much more eloquently and um, efficiently than I am here. I'm just trying to explain it because it's not a way that we're used to thinking. But we are free from this slavishness to the law, this fear of punishment. Now, does it still apply to the old man within us? Yeah, sure. The catechism's full of exam- The large catechism is full of examples of that and Luther teaching that. But insofar as it pertains to the new man, um, we're not extorted. We're not unwilling. But rather, we're willing people. It's not a mere appearance of obedience or appearance of lawfulness, but it's a true and genuine obedience and lawfulness that springs from the heart because we love God and love what's good and right and true and beautiful. And we know that being selfish is not the end-all, be-all of life. In fact, it's generally speaking, to be avoided. Okay, that's the third point. Make sense? I won't drone on then. Yeah, please. There's a hand.
1: What then of the uh, fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom, how does the fear of the Lord fit into then being set free from fear of punishment?
0: (laughs) Yeah, so again, as pertains to uh, the sinful nature let the fear of the Lord be full and wrathful. And I mean, we, even we, when we confess our sins, when we're drowning the old Adam, when we're crucifying the old Adam, I mean, God, like we're on the side of God's wrath against our flesh. And we want our flesh put to death. We want that final spiritual circumcision of death where when you die, it's not you that dies. It's the old you that dies. It's the flesh still adhering to you that dies, right? So no problem there with that fear. And if the sinner within us sort of quails and trembles, um, that's good too because that, that is the, the beginning of contrition and the beginning of repentance and that kind of thing. Now, whereas fear would be viewed more positively, that would be the kind of filial fear. Uh, you can think of like different words like respect that a, that a son has for his father. But there's also just kind of a general fear there. <laughs> right? Isn't there? I mean... You realize that when you're, when you're, when you're a boy, you, dea- you realize that when you're dealing with your father, you're dealing with someone who's smarter and stronger and more capable. And that has a humbling effect and um, actually kind of invokes a sense of, of love and awe and fear. So I think that that's kind of what's in view too, where we're going to articulate fear Like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of a wisdom. It's like if you fear the Lord, you won't fear anything else. Because why? He's the Almighty. How much greater is his intellect than yours? How much greater is his power than yours? So he alone is to be feared. Next to him, there's nothing else that can be feared. And we stand in awe of him as our creator, as our redeemer, as our sanctifier, And in these three ways, we stand in a kind of filial awe. Um, So there's there's sort of a positive way in which we can speak about that fear for the new man, and a negative way in which we can speak of that fear for the old man. In terms of the Christian and Toto, they both have their importance. They both have their roles. Okay. Anything else we want to do on this? The, yeah, please. Okay. What, what, um, one second. You want, you want to go first since you have it, Anne? Yeah, please go ahead, and then we'll just pass it up. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. I was the place that I used to fall down on, and probably still do every now and then. Is when um, and in a dear, I believe he's sainted now, Daryl. You remember? Yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: He set me straight on this, and it.
0: Was, did he really? It was yes, great. he did. Yeah.
1: And, um, is that I get stuck on kind of like Eve, is this really a work from God? Mm. Should I even do this Mm -hmm. or, you know, is is this coming from me or is it coming from the Holy Spirit? Yeah. And he basically told me, Anne, just do it. He'll set it right. So he was kind of saying, you can't be afraid of making a mistake either. And whether he God punishes or just lovingly knows what was in your heart and that but just do it, you yeah. know, instead of sitting there wondering, is this really from God?
0: Of course. There's this great line. I first came across it in Chrysostom and I've since come across it other places. God honors the intention. Yeah. So he can see through the heart, he can honor the intention. Um, it's just such a great line and so comforting. I think biblically, too, remember that parable Jesus tells? Strange and wonderful parable in many ways, but it's just a redundancy. Uh, what he said, remember the parable where he, tells, he um, speaks of the first son who says, um, and I can't, maybe I've got the order wrong, but, hey, go and work in my vineyard. And he says, I go, but then he doesn't. And then the other one says, I won't go, but then he does. Which one does the will of his father? The Pharisees answer correctly, the one who says no, but then goes. So it, it's a, it, among many other things, it illustrates that it's better to go, even if that going was ugly, <laughs> than to not go, right? And, and uh, have this fake, phony piety about it. So I think that, that we can find great encouragement that it, even if we've said to the Lord, no, or even if our flesh is dragging its feet, or even if we're maybe conflicted, uh, in, the, in the words that you just quoted of, of the dear sainted Daryl, just do it, you know? Yeah. We, and that's, the, that's the, kind of the bottom line of all of this stuff is don't overthink it. Just do it. Please. Just a fast question, what is the Decalogue, what chemists is referring to? Mm, yeah, great question. The Decalogue is just another name for the Ten Commandments. Deca is ten, and log is words. It's funny because when you go looking for, um, like, when you go looking at the text of the Ten Commandments, I mean, even just like Exodus 20, you find that, strictly speaking, there's more than ten. When I first realized that, like, as a baby pastor, I wondered if there was this whole, um, like, this whole conspiracy, but then later on I can't remember where it is off the top of my head maybe in Deuteronomy it actually refers in scripture somewhere it refers to the Ten Commandments as the Decalogue as the Ten Words and so you know that there are in fact Ten Commandments there no conspiracy yeah great question okay so we're free from the law don't have to justify ourselves free from its condemnation and then free from the kind of external slavishness that all the quote-unquote good people of the world think they have because they're law-abiding. They're not, in fact, law-abiding. They're not, in fact, good. The only reason they're law-abiding is because they're too cowardly of the consequences. If the consequences were removed, they'd live in manifestly evil and wicked ways. Okay? So the law functions in that respect as a curb. And insofar as we are new creatures, we don't have need of the curb. Again, you... Even if you could get away with robbing a bank, you wouldn't because you love God and love what's good. Okay, then on to one ninety-seven. Why is this doctrine regarding good work? Or why is this doctrine regarding good works, which have been divinely commanded by the law, so necessary? Okay, four answers given. One, that all self-chosen and man-appointed acts of worship might be rejected. Here's the irony, is that the law actually sets you free from all the nonsense. This is the the sixth article of the Formula of Concord on the third use of the law, that the law actually sets you free as a Christian. It sets you free from all the nonsense that your own heart and the hearts of others might invent. So all the self-chosen man-appointed acts of worship are rejected. Two that believers might be reminded that new obedience is not optional, but divinely commanded. It is required of us. Yeah, And even believers need to be reminded of that on account of the sinful flesh that tries to confuse. Three. You know, another mental thought experiment, I hate to take us on a tangent, but why not? Just real quick, another thought experiment is how are you going to be in heaven? Are you going to be keeping the Ten Commandments or not? course just naturally (laughs) naturally it's not like you know in heaven adultery or thievery or covetousness is suddenly going to be okay it's that you're going to be free from all these things isn't that the point yeah so um the law it it continues eternally the decalogue is eternal and it's just going to be embodied in us Um, love perfect love for god and perfect love for neighbors exactly who we're going to be in heaven and in the new heavens and the new earth Okay, three, that the good works of believers might be sanctified by the word of God in which they are prescribed and by the Holy Spirit whom they are, by whom they are prepared in us. And I think that that's really a riff on Ephesians 2.10 that God has ordained these things for us to walk in. And so we are co- truly cooperating with the Holy Spirit in the sense of the Book of Concord. Obviously, the Holy Spirit's the one that creates a new man, empowers that new man, gives that new man a free will, etc. But it is, in fact, that freed will that agrees with and cooperates with the Holy Spirit in these acts of uh, and works of God. So we're invited into that participation of the work of God. We're uh, fellow workers with Him, to use a biblical phrase. Um, actually, the the... Greek there is synergists. We're synergists with God. We work with him. Synergism in justification, bad and wrong. Synergism in sanctification, if rightly understood, good and biblical. Paul uses it himself. For that in the exercise of good works, the believers might be continually reminded of their imperfections by the law of God. For in self-appointed works, men easily get the idea of perfection or super irrigation. Maybe a little bit to unpack here. The exercise of good works is a good thing. Just like exercise for your body is good, exercise and virtue is good. Just like if you use your muscles, they get bigger and more efficient. Same with your virtues. Just as if you abuse parts of your body, they'll, their usefulness will, and health will diminish. Same if you abuse and trample parts of your virtuous self. So the exercise of good works is important as a phrase and as a concept. Hereinfore for that in the exercise of good works, the believers might be continually reminded of their imperfections, right? So as you're going about the exercise of your good works, you're going to constantly see that you're imperfect. In the words of St. Paul, the good that you want to do, you do not. And this is an important aspect of walking in good works. Like if you never try, you're not going to... It's that insight from C.S. Lewis. Show me a man who thinks he's good and I'll show you a man who's never tried very hard at being good. <laughs> so the idea being that part of, the, part of the zealous participation and exercise in the good works of the Ten Commandments and the vocations of life is that we'll realize how fall we fall Far, uh, how, yeah, how far we fall from this perfection. And that's good. That's healthy. It's accurate. It's true. It does, in, a, in effect, bind us to Christ. Whereas works that are self appointed, lo and behold, the works I appoint for myself I can achieve. Isn't that an amazing coincidence? Then I can convince myself that I'm good. And you can easily get the idea of perfection. I mean, this exists, obviously, inside and outside of the church. And then supererogation is the idea of above and beyond. So you not only... Like, supererogation as a concept is best understood in light of the treasury of the saints, the merit of the saints. There were certain saints that not only kept the Ten Commandments perfectly, but then did so many other good works that uh, not only are all their debts repaid by their good works, but they've just profited on top of that, and they're in the black. So then what God does is comes and scoops up the excess and puts it into a giant treasury in heaven. Think of all the different saints, all the, and it's in the treasury. And now when you pray to God, or when you give money to God, um, maybe give money to the Pope, rather, uh, then, or pray to the saints, then they take from this treasury and put it into your account. It's just all fiction. It's just all nonsense. But it's re- I mean, it was really taught in the Western Church. It still is taught in Roman Catholicism. That's probably not terribly popular today. It's just nonsense. This idea of the supererogation above and beyond and then the treasury of the saints that you can draw upon that treasury and like, just sort of get it credited to your account. <laughs> I mean, as if Christ's blood isn't enough. That's really what that is, right? As if Christ's blood and righteousness isn't enough. That's a terrible insult to the gospel, a terrible insult to Christ. Okay, so that's what's meant by super-irrigation, and we want to avoid that. You can really easily avoid any concept of super-irrigation if you're actually trying to do the Ten Commandments in your vocation in life. You're going to be under no illusion that you're sort of stacking up profit. (laughs) Okay, did all that, and now I'm stacking up profit. Anybody want some of this? Yeah, please.
1: Okay, so... um... We're free from the law, but can we not still lose our our righteousness? Like if we don't repent when we commit a sin, or we don't forgive others, will we then not be forgiven? And,
0: yeah, that's a great question. You're anticipating what comes next with the difference between mortal and venial sins. At what time does you know? In which at what time and in what ways? Do sins manifest in a, in a mortal way that is in a way that destroys faith or indicates the destruction of faith has taken place? So we're, get, we're getting there, and it's good that you're anticipating that question. The short answer to your question is, yeah, when you depart from Christ, you fall back under the condemnation of the law. Why would you depart from Christ who is your savior and the one forgives your sins because you don't want your sins forgiven. You no longer want to be saved. That's effectively what impenitence is. It's saying, I'm doing this sin and I don't want to be forgiven. I want it to be approved. I don't want to be pulled out of this sin. I want this sin to be blessed. That's a state of impenitence, a state of mortal sin. So I think that that's why, logically, Chemnitz goes there next. Any other thoughts? Doing okay? It's getting tough with breakfast smelling so good in the background. We'll persevere. We're exercising ourselves in good works. All right. 198. Can man do truly good works by the powers of his free will? Ooh, there's a thorny question. An unspiritual man can to some extent avoid outward sins, and exercise outward discipline. Now, there's a whole bunch of scriptures there quoted, and that's fine. You can look those up if you disagree with this point, but I think it's obvious. An unspiritual man, an unbeliever, can to some extent avoid outward sins and exercise outward discipline. And isn't that true? Because even if you look at unbelievers, you say this one's better than that one. That's it. This one is, uh, I would rather have this person as my neighbor than that person as my neighbor. So you think of who's going to, if you've got this idea of like, well, everybody's equally sinful. So you'll take the child molester to be living next door to you before you'd take like, I don't know, the president of the Boy Scouts or something. No, probably not. (laughs) 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 So the, uh, the idea that even in the civil sphere, we've got some people imprisoned for life. And we've got other people who are elected to lead us. Boy, that's another bad example, isn't it? <laughs> we can see a civil difference, but it's only by degree. And sometimes even that degree causes you to wrinkle your brain. Um, but there are, there are ways in which you can see it. That's really what's being articulated here. There are people who, um, maybe take an example from Scripture, where God says, if... Uh, a man sheds the blood of another man, his blood must be shed. Okay? There's someone who's worthy of death, and then there's someone else who's not worthy of death. Okay, so a distinction can be made here, however, minor. And that's the, that's the essential biblical point being made here and stated here by Chemnitz. Next line, but by his own powers, he can neither begin nor render true spiritual obedience. This goes back to that third point under question 196. Why? Because whatever he, good he sets out to do, this civil righteousness, is always based on his own self-interest. It's always based just because, oh, if I do the right thing, I get a carrot, or if I, you know, I'm not going to do the wrong thing because I don't want the stick. There's always some version of carrot and stick, which is a function of, well, it's better for me if I... Do X Is that really morality in any Christian sense? No, it's still at root self-serving. And that's the second reflection we need to have, that by his own powers he can neither begin nor render true spiritual obedience. Chemnitz goes on to say, for the law of God is spiritual, and true good works consist in this, that love is out of a pure heart and a good conscience and faith unfeigned. That obedience is not under pressure and of necessity, but voluntarily and spontaneous out of the heart. But the law can neither form nor give that kind of heart by urging, driving, and compelling. Nor is man's free will able to render such obedience by its own natural powers. But such works are and are called fruits of the Spirit. Okay, so we've got a couple different concepts woven together. We've got this concept of civil righteousness and how even pagans can have a kind of left-hand civil righteousness. We can see distinctions between them. Does any of that civil righteousness, does any of that quote-unquote keeping of the law avail before the judgment seat of God? No, and here's a verse like Isaiah, all your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. And indeed, when we examine the righteous deeds, they're only done for the sake of self. They're only done for the sake of carrot and stick. They're not generally done for anything more than that. Um, Even amongst the most noble of of the works that a pagan could do is the kind of selfless work like, and this is frequently brought up, and it is. It's a great civil work, and it's probably about the best kind of civil work you can have. Jesus even uses that as a key teaching example. And that's where, let's say, a pagan were to sacrifice himself for the sake of others. The soldier were to jump on the grenade for the sake of others or something like that. That's about the highest level of civil righteousness you can have. But even that, uh, as valuable as it is, and as much as everyone's going to be grateful and thankful who remain alive on account of your sacrifice, even that in and of itself does not avail before God. That's about the peak and the height of civil righteousness, It's probably why Jesus uses that as a launch point for um, his self-sacrifice. Greater love has none other than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus is talking there specifically about himself and his laying down his life uh, in the full and comprehensive sense that we might have our lives restored to us, being reconciled to God. Okay, so the first point then is to reflect on civil righteousness and how there really is no free will. There's just the self-serving will. Then when one is baptized, his will is freed and cooperates with the Holy Spirit. It's freed by the Holy Spirit, cooperates with the Holy Spirit, and is a truly good and Christian work. It's not done purely out of self-interest. In fact, Christians can do many things. And and the where sometimes the language of true Christian works or spiritual works or truly good works, that language is employed in a way to try to shorthand articulate Um, those works that we Christians are capable of doing that a pagan could never do because they're to our harm or our hurt. And so they're um, specifically to our harm or to our hurt for the spiritual benefit of those around us. Not merely for the bodily benefit, but for the spiritual benefit. Okay, so lots of important concepts articulated here, even if they're kind of woven together and not well explained at this point by candidates. Please. This may be a little out of order, uh, going back to uh,
2: the, the six primary vocations. Uh, when a good work is being done in a vocation, um, the receiver of that good work, I'm thinking of the role of uh, a pastor. Uh, mm-hmm. When he is doing good works to to the body, mm-hmm at the detriment possibly of a good work being delivered in the family Mm, yeah if you could just comment on the ordering can that be uh, done out of god's order and disproportionate uh, even in the home Uh, a husband who is doing a good work outside uh, to neighbors and then the wife comments and says well why aren't you doing Mm -hmm. good works for me Mm -hmm. so is it what's happening there is that
0: the flesh coming in uh or is Mm. that something that is out of god's order you know it's real tough to answer that question generically uh specifics and answering a specific question would be easier i won't fully punt but i want to say that because it's true and so to speak generally about it there is a kind of hierarchy of vocation Uh, when you're born into this world you're immediately a child so you, you're, you have a primary vocation to your parents. Um, that remains until the son leaves father and mother and clings on to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Now that's a new, that's a new ordering, and a higher ordering. Okay. So that becomes the primary vocation. And then even from that primary vocation flows the vocation then as one becomes a parent to children, Spouse should come first, even unto children. And it's actually a glorious thing. It seems counterintuitive. It's a gl- Sometimes like, kids will ask when they're being sweet but ornery, as is their way, you know, do you love me mo- more or mom more? It's an ornery question, right? Because love, I love you all equally but differently, right, is the real answer. But to be ornery back, you say, no, I love mom more. I've loved mom first, and me and mom love each other, and that's where you came from. Right? now what you're really doing is teaching there an ordering in a humility and you're elevating marriage in their eyes in a way that you know, other words and teaching out of context couldn't but it's expressive of that kind of hierarchy and ordering now yeah in relationship to all other na- neighbors they, it, it extends out from there um, so yeah wife first children second neighbors third viewing it from that angle Now, in terms of like a pastor, so part of of your essential role as a husband, and then if God grants as a father, is to provide and to protect. That's right out of Genesis. And so that providing then falls for a man who's called into the pastoral office, as that's part of his role. But it's actually a lower role than husband or wife, or sorry, husband or father, I mean. Uh, and, it's a, and that role can be more easily set aside than the other. In fact, if the others have been trampled, that role can no longer be. That's, you know, that's the sort of one-woman man set forth in the qualifications of uh, overseers by St. Paul. So I look at it as, look, like, look, the pastoral office is great, and, yeah, practically speaking, it's a balance between the family vocation and the vocation to the family of God, and there's, there's a constant and continual balance that goes on there, and some weeks are more heavy to the church, and some weeks are more heavy to the family, and that's just the way it goes. And uh, the elders and I reflect on this from time to time, and there's just a general sense. I mean, Plus, you can look at the church calendar and see that I'm not slacking. So uh, there's plenty to do here and plenty to do at home. That's a balance. But strictly speaking, one should be ready to vacate the pastoral office before vacating any other office of parent or spouse that's, or hus- husband. I mean, that's the, those are the higher callings, the higher orders.
2: And, and we're to listen to. Yeah. Right. We're in our vocation,
0: mm-hmm. you know, our, our, our slave vocation, mm-hmm. which is our work. Our yeah. Right. Exactly. I mean, so. It's like a,
2: yeah. It's a delicate
0: yeah. That's the. I mean, the real monasticism is to be found in the vocations. Like, instead of some like bell ringing you to wake you up in the middle of the night, it's your child crying, <laughs> or it's the sprinkler system broken. <laughs> These are the things that really call you. Um, and their real and true needs and uh, it, yeah, if you to borrow a phrase from corporate America if you lean into vocation you're, gonna under, you're going to understand that there's all kinds of opportunity for true devotion and truly good works and true prayers and stuff that's involuntary because you're not dreaming it up like hey I, what, what's my spiritual discipline going to be tonight? Uh, it's already formed for you and very frequently it's not what you want to do <laughs> And I'll get home from a hard day, and the kids are melting down, and they've got homework that they can't figure out, and like the last thing on earth you want to do is deal with that. But that's the call. That's what an actual good work looks like. And uh, you know, many such examples could be given to that effect. Yeah. Okay, that's it. The Lord be with you. Thanks.